In John chapter 8, we have a familiar passage. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've been looking at the issue of community, the practices, the Christian practices that build and sustain Christian community. So far, we have looked at two. We began a third last week. We've looked at gratitude, promise-making, and promise-keeping. And now we're looking at living truthfully. Living truthfully is difficult because we are human, we are finite, we are fallible, we are fallen. Which means that sometimes even when we try to do the right thing, or if we do the right thing, it doesn't always lead to good results. Our perspectives, our understandings are incomplete. In the same way that with promise-making and promise-keeping you have two parties involved, when it comes to living truthfully, you also have two parties involved, the truth-teller and the truth-receiver. But both are, in fact, human beings. Um, And so things don't always go as they should. By the way, this explains in part why in modern or postmodern contemporary thinking, uh, every time you make a truth claim, someone says, oh, well, that is, in fact, an expression of power. That anyone who claims to have the truth is really, in fact, just exercising power over someone below them. Before we get to the matter of of living truthfully, there's some things I think we should cover. First of all, God is a God of truth. We saw this last week in Romans 3. Paul says, let God be true and every human being a liar. Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And later on that night, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So God is a God of truth. And if we are his people, then truth should be of some importance to us. Secondly, God is all-knowing, but we are not all-knowing. One writer put it this way, The belief in an all-knowing God should inspire the search for truth. Because God does know what the truth is. It would be something if nobody knew what the truth was, but the fact that he is the God of truth means that somebody, in fact, knows what it is. The awareness of our human limitations should make us modest about the claim that we have founded, however. As Paul writes, we know in part, first, because we are finite beings, and second, because our limited knowledge is shaped by the interest we pursue and filtered through the cultures and traditions we inhabit. In our culture, part of what we do when we give testimony in court is we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I would argue that's simply not possible. And yet that's part of our culture. That's how we speak. Um, And so in many ways it shapes how we view the truth. The third thing I would tell you is that there is more to truth than information. There are some people who see truth-telling as telling everyone the truth, regardless of the consequences. If somebody gets hurt, Um, You know, then so be it. Um, It's sort of an in-your-face approach. There is an expression in Tagalog that you throw rocks up in the air and then wherever they come down, then so be it. You know, let the chips fall where they may. Well, and that's what it means to tell the truth. Um, 
I think truthful, being truthful involves patience, forgiveness, and interdependence. Think for a moment of how a parent is to teach his or her child the truth. Does this mean that you hover, you're, you're 24-7, you're watching whatever they do? Does it mean that you protect them from any type of difficulty that they may encounter? Or do you allow them to learn as you watch? In fact, in the process, they may get hurt, but in that pain, they learn something important. For some reason, I remember this example I gave in a sermon years ago. When a child comes up to you with great delight and joy and says to you, Look what my daddy bought, buyed me. What is your reaction? Is it to correct their grammar? Or is it in fact to share in their joy and their delight? Well, some who would take a much more literal approach to truth would say, well, no, 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 you have to correct the grammar. That's bad grammar. That's not truthful. That's not correct. I would disagree. I mean, it's, sure, it's not good grammar. But in sharing in their joy and their delight, I think that is far more truthful than having proper grammar. Living truthfully does not mean correction all the time, but it means sharing in joy and delight. But we are people who live after the Enlightenment, after modernity. We're now into post-modernity. And truth has been reduced to fact. A fact is a fact is a fact. We may be guilty of doing the same thing with the Christian faith. As we've seen in this series, Christian practices are based, or rooted, they should be, in Christian theology. That's why we call them Christian practices. Otherwise, it's just sheer sentimentality. So there's not to be practice-free theology or theory, and there's not to be theory-free or theology-free practice. fourth thing I would tell you is we are limited in our capacity to comprehend and appreciate the truth. Again, this is part of the consequence of the enlightenment in which we believe that all knowledge is available or accessible to us. And when we come to church, if we are not careful, we will have the same attitude. That it's simply a matter of reading the right books, listening to the right pastor or speaker, and then you will know everything you need to know. We have this belief, contrary to Jack Nicholson's character's words, that we can handle the truth. We have the capacity. In reality, I would argue that that's not true. In a well-known poem by Emily Dickinson, Tell All the Truth, the title of it, she wrote, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies... Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased, with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. When people say, come on, tell me the truth, I can handle it, as though somehow we have this almost infinite capacity, uh, that's simply not true. Think of where you are today, versus where you were five years ago, or ten years ago. Ten years ago, were you ready back then to know the things that you know now? Somehow we imagine that if, yeah, yeah, just tell me the truth and I will be able to take it. 
and that simply is not true. We are limited. Number five, there are seven of these things. This is all preliminary. We'll get to the main event in, in a bit. There is a place for fiction in truth-telling. That is, literal interpretation is not the only truth. This sort of goes beyond what I want to talk about with regard to Christian practices, but I think it's important to mention, in part because there are those in the church who think that fiction is, is evil, is wrong, because it is not truth. Some might think that fiction is truth is a sort of an oxymoron. In reality, a story or a parable may convey truth in a powerful way. And then we have figures of speech, things like irony or sarcasm, hyperbole, metaphor, paradox, all of which, by the way, are found in Scripture. So that when people say, do you believe that the Bible is literally true? Well, explain, I believe that the Bible is true but I'm not always to read it literally. There are figures of speech. We find stories in Scripture, and uh, I was talking to James about this last week, that I was sort of raised that all the stories you find in the Bible are true, that when Jesus told the parable, that must have really happened because Jesus would never use fiction. That's simply not true. The story that comes to mind for me is in the Old Testament, when Nathan goes to confront David about adultery and murder. Now, if he had lived when and where we do and been like us, he might have gone and said, listen, David, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're guilty of adultery. You're guilty of murder. That's not what he does. He comes into the presence of the king and he says, king, I have a problem. I have a story. I have a question. What needs to be done? It's a story of two men, a poor man and a rich man. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. The rich man, on the other hand, had great herds and flocks. But a traveler came in to the rich man's house and the rich man wanted to serve him something. And so rather than taking from his herds, he took the lamb from this poor man and his family and killed it and cooked it and served it to the traveler. David is outraged by this deed. And then Nathan says to him, you are the man. And I think he may have said it like that. I don't think he yelled it, pointed his finger at him, because the story has already conveyed the truth. The David who had more than one wife, who was quite wealthy, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I would argue that what Nathan does is far more powerful than a direct, literal approach to saying, you are guilty of adultery and murder. Then you read the Gospels and you have the parables of Jesus in which he conveys truth through stories. And then there's the place for question. Oftentimes we think, well, if I'm going to live truthfully, I have to tell people things. And yet, when you look at Scripture, you find, for example, in the Old Testament that God, over and over again, asks questions rather than telling people things. When Adam had sinned and was hiding, where are you, Adam? Did God not know where he was? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? 
question after question. And I've, I think I've encouraged you to do this before. The next time you read through the Gospels, uh, either make a list or mark your Bible, how many times Jesus asks questions? We think if we have the truth, I believe we do have the truth, but that doesn't mean that we always tell. Sometimes we need to ask and allow, in a sense, draw people out by asking of questions. I think that's a series in and of itself, so we'll set that aside. Number six, there is more to telling the truth than speaking. Living truthfully involves more than words. Particularly for community. Christine Pohl, in her book, when she writes about practices that build and sustain community, refers to something that she calls drive-by prophecy. She tells the story of a pastor friend of hers who had a couple who became a part of his congregation. They came to him one day and told him that they had been led by God to point out his shortcomings. They said, quote, We are here because the Spirit told us to come and vomit on you concerning your leadership. You need to let go. You need to be more prayerful. We are here because we care. Really? Sort of wish you didn't care so much. Um, There's a real contrast between what this couple did and what we find from Old Testament prophets, in which the prophets wept as they told people of God's coming judgment. Rather than sort of saying, I'm better than you, and elevating themselves, separating themselves from the people, they are among the people, and they are weeping, and they are saying, you need to repent and return to God. They were part of the community. They were committed to the community. And they longed for the community to be healed. Again, we should recognize that a commitment to truthful living doesn't mean that we tell everyone everything. There's also a place for silence, for discretion, and for the respect, or respect for the privacy and feelings of others. I mentioned this several weeks ago, but um, in the story of Job, I think one of the most powerful portions is that early in the book when his friends come and they see him and they weep, and for seven days nobody says anything. It's been called the sacrament of silence. They got into trouble when they opened their mouths. They were far more truthful when they were silent. Then the last thing, number seven, we are to recognize our brokenness when we speak the truth. Now we come to our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first 12 verses. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's an amazing passage. And again, a series of sermons in and of itself. What I would point out, though, is verse number seven, uh, the expression that we hold this treasure in jars of clay. And I don't think Paul is simply saying, you know, Adam was made from the dust of the earth, and so that's, you know, that's the analogy. I think rather he speaks to brokenness. That something that is made of clay has the capacity to be broken. And we are broken. And it is in our brokenness that the truth of God is able to shine through the cracks in who we are. You know, I think in what Paul calls the drive-by prophesying, there is no sense of brokenness on the part of the person speaking, but rather you're the one who's broken and I'm here to fix you. We need to recognize that we are all broken. And it is because of our brokenness that the truth can, in fact, live through us. I think N.T. Wright put it this way, that we are wounded healers. By God's grace, we are to bring healing to the world but we ourselves are wounded as well. Well, someone might be wondering that if we cannot know the truth fully or completely, then how are we to live? What are to be our practices? What does it mean to live truthfully? I think it means in part to live and walk according to the light that has been given to us. And we are to think in terms of the congregation, the community of faith, the church. With this in mind, what I want to do here, the rest of the sermon, is what I did with gratitude and promises. To consider those things that weaken our practice of living truthfully and the things that strengthen that practice. What weakens or deforms living truthfully? I'll mention a few. I think they're self-evident, but we'll say them anyway. First of all, deception. What we find in scripture is that truth and life, uh, sorry, truth and light are connected and deception is connected with choosing darkness over light. In John chapter 3, as Paul, as Jesus, I'm sorry, is speaking to Nicodemus, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth will come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. 
But we saw last Sunday that sometimes we may in fact try to justify deception or lying or dishonesty because of the results. We are Americans, we are pragmatic, we have a can-do attitude. It's characteristic of this culture. We want to know if something works. And if it works, then, okay, if you have to you know, bruise a few people, if you have to cut a few corners, then so be it. What we find in our culture is that dishonesty is frequently rewarded. If the job is important enough, is the, if the goal is lofty enough, then people, I think, are often comfortable just doing something that is, in fact, dishonest. The church, I think, is as guilty of this as anyone else. But it's for a good cause. We want people to hear the gospel. We want them to come to Jesus in repentance. And if we're not careful, deception becomes a part of the work of evangelism. Deception also can be where I stand, behind the pulpit. And oftentimes justified because it's for a good cause. You want people to make the right decision. I'm reminded of the story of a little girl who asked her mother. She said, Mommy, is is Daddy telling the truth or is he just preaching? Um, When preaching is reduced to the level of trying to manipulate people to get something out of them, then something has gone tragically wrong. Oftentimes when people share the gospel, they make promises that cannot be kept, promises that should not be made. For example, become a Christian and all your problems will melt away. This is simply not true. And as much as we want all people to come to faith in Christ, lying cannot be justified. But in many ways, I'm not talking about dishonesty to outsiders. We're talking about the things that build and sustain community. There should not be any deception among us. I mentioned last week that Christine Pohl, who teaches in a seminary in Kentucky, has in fact caught seminarians cheating. And when she confronts them, um, they say, well, I've been really busy with church stuff this week. And so I didn't have time to do the job properly. She wonders, what kind of pastor will you be? What kind of minister will you be? Because when the pressures get on you in church, will you then cut corners because you have things to do? Deception weakens truthful living among God's people. We should not practice it. The second thing that weakens it might be less obvious, and that is, Self-deception. This one may catch us off guard. But we need to recognize that oftentimes we feel the need to perceive ourselves as good or righteous. It can be very painful, very painful, to admit the truth about ourselves, to ourselves. If we don't do this, then we are in fact deceiving ourselves. And then we're shocked when we do something that is wrong. We're like, where did that come from? When in fact, it's been there in many ways all along. 
we just have deceived ourselves. We pay lip service to saying, oh yes, we're sinners, we are fallen. But then we ignore the inconsistencies in our living. We ignore the wrong things that we do. As one author put it, we tend to attribute successes to our own abilities and blame our failures on external factors. We are responsible for the success and all these other people are the reasons that we have failed. Self-deception really can flourish when we offer rationalization, when we blame others, when we fail to take responsibility. So there should not be deception in the congregation. There should not be self-deception. The third thing is there should not be lying. And again, one could say, well, this goes without saying. Uh, Last week we looked at the example of Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied and the consequences of their lie. Um, But I would remind you that at the core of lying or telling the truth is relationship. You might remember last week I mentioned the ninth commandment which if you'd ask someone what are the Ten Commandments for the ninth one, they would probably say, do not lie. But that's not what the commandment is. It says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It isn't as though a lie can somehow exist on its own. It is always within the context of a relationship. And so is telling the truth. Paul told the Colossians, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. The focus is on relationships. And yet, uh, I'm on thin ice here, bear with me. We have at least two examples in the Old Testament of people who lied and seem to have been rewarded by God for their lying. First example is found in Exodus chapter 1. It's the story of the midwives. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, and here I think they're shading the truth, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. They lied and God blessed them. Perhaps the more familiar example is in Joshua chapter 2, the story of Rahab, who hides the two Israelite spies. She had hidden them on a roof. And then when the authorities came to her house, yes, the men came to see me, but I do not know where they have gone to. Or I do not know where they have come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers are gone, the gates were shut. And then later on, she let the spies down by a rope outside her window. In both cases, 
let's be clear. Let's they lied. Okay, let's not try to make it less than what it is. The midwives lied. Rahab lied. And yet God did not judge them for this. In fact, he prospered them. I want to be careful, but I would suggest to you that we owe the duty of speaking the truth only to those who have a right to the truth. Okay. If someone comes to me and they want to kill somebody and they ask me, where is that person that I want to kill? I don't believe I have a duty to tell that person the truth. I do not believe that I do. And I know this opens a whole can of worms and I actually don't want to go in that direction. What I want you to consider is that I do owe the truth to members of this congregation, to this community. So let's not talk theoretically about, oh, what if somebody wants, somebody out there wants... No, let's talk here, us. We are the people of God. And I believe that we do owe the truth to each other. We should not lie to one another. So these three things, I think, are self-evident. Perhaps the second one, not so much so, but deception, self-deception, and lying. Um, Let me mention some other things that are less obvious. Idle chatter, rumors, and gossip. And here I will not say anything. I will simply read to you from Scripture. Matthew 12, verse 36. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Ephesians 5. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Proverbs 16, verse 28. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Then back to Ephesians, Ephesians 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Idle chatter, rumors, and gossip, these do not strengthen us. They weaken us when we try to live truthfully. Okay, that's the negative. What are the positive? What are the things that strengthen truthful living? First of all, let's understand that living truthfully is something that we grow into, that we are still growing into. It isn't as though somehow somebody gives you the truth. Okay, this is truthful living. In the same way that someone in first grade does not understand principles or concepts that someone in first year high school does, Uh, So we as Christians are also in the process of growing. One of the traditions, this is actually the Quakers, suggests that there are four things that, that will help you in terms of nurturing truthful living. The first is interesting. Listen for the truth in the words of others. Second, speak the truth as you understand it with kindness and love. Thirdly, avoid gossip, tale-bearing, breaking confidences, or belittling others. This is the last thing we saw, idle chatter, rumors, and gossip. And lastly, resist temptation to falsehood. 
It is interesting, I find it fascinating, that the suggestions begin with listening. But consider two things. In scripture, listening is at the heart of wisdom and discernment. Read, the, read Proverbs particularly. Listening is at the core of wisdom. And secondly, there are two parties in truth-telling. The truth-teller and the truth-receiver. So there's a place for speaking the truth. There's also a place for listening. A relationship is necessary. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. The relationship is all important. How how do you expect to have a decent relationship with God if you don't with your brother and your sister? And then in Matthew 18, the passage that most people refer to as church discipline Notice how many times we are told to listen. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, that is the congregation, And if they refuse to listen to even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Communities that love truth should be a safe place. A place for confession, a place for forgiveness, and a place for healing. Sadly, that is oftentimes not the case. There's a lot more that could be said about this, and perhaps when I return uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll return to this. The next few weeks, John will be speaking, I believe, from the book of Psalms, and I hope you will pay close attention. In living truthfully, we should be marked by listening by discretion and by timeliness. There is a time and a place when we are to say certain things. The night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. God teaches us what we need to know, when we need to know it. I think we should take the same approach. We shouldn't imagine that the truth, there is truth, but we should imagine that I have the truth and here, let me share it, let me dump it on you and therefore you will have the truth as I have the truth. It's much more than information. It is the way that we are supposed to live. By God's grace, we can and should grow into truthful living. And in doing so, we will build and sustain a sense of community among God's people. Let's pray together.
Father, in an age in which few people seem to believe that there is such a thing as truth, at least a truth for everyone, oftentimes we have run in the opposite direction and reduced truth to mere factness, a literalness. And we have failed to appreciate that we are to live the truth. We are to live truthfully. And this means listening. This means practicing discretion. Speaking the truth in love when it is the right time. May we recognize how broken and fallen we are. That as we speak the truth, we do so with the recognition of our own frailty. May we as a congregation here at the Church on Melrose live truthfully. And through the week when we are apart from one another, as we are in the world, may we live truthfully there as well. We live in a world that seems to take delight in not telling the truth. And those who do not tell the truth oftentimes seem to prosper. By your grace, may we as your people be people of truth. I pray for this congregation as Guy and I will be away for the next few weeks. Watch over them. Keep them safe from harm. Keep them safe from the wicked one. And by your grace, may we come back together in a few weeks, rejoicing in all the things you have done in our lives. I commit them to your care. Now may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. As broken as we are, may we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.